0: Hey guys, this is Brad. Just wanted to take a minute to thank you, the listener, for listening and proving you have a growth mindset. Our mission is to curate information from the top influencers around the world. We provide you with real actionable steps on how to improve in any and every area of your life. Whether you're an entrepreneur, C-suite executive, or just starting your journey of self-development, professional development is all about growth. And you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. If you enjoy this content, please help us by liking, sharing, and subscribing. Here we go. Hey guys, welcome to the Professional Development Podcast. Got a super...
1: Super awesome episode today. Uh today's guest is a contributing editor to Men's Health magazine, a professor at UNLV. His works appeared in over 60 countries. He's been on the Joe Rogan podcast uh, and most recently he wrote his book The Comfort Crisis. Now we welcome on to the Professional Development Podcast Michael Easter.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me guys. Should be fun.
0: Yeah, we're super excited. Should be a good episode.
1: Yeah, so you're the author of the book, The Comfort Crisis, and uh, Brad's actually reading it right now. I just kind of started on it. The mantra of our podcast is, if you're not growing, you're dying. Uh, and in order to grow, you obviously have to step out of your comfort zone. So can you talk to us of uh, a little bit about the book and why it, it might be like the easiest time in human existence to stay within our comfort zones?
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, I think first, it's, it's very important that I let you guys know that so I'm a professor at UNLV. And some of my students call me a professor. Look at that! Yeah, our brands are totally aligned. Yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. That's Um, amazing. (laughs) So, yeah, the book is called "The Comfort Crisis," and it is basically about how, you know, as the world has become a lot more comfortable, convenient, easier over time, that's affected our health and happiness in a lot of different ways. So, you look at a lot of the most pressing problems that society is facing, everything from obesity chronic disease, uh, depression, anxiety, lack of meaning, they can all be tied back to the fact that things are easier for us than ever in a lot of ways. I mean, I think the one that everyone sort of intuitively gets and thinks of initially is uh, the fact that we don't really have to move anymore to live, right? Life used to take effort, Um, but it goes way past that. It goes to our food system. Um, I was just even talking to someone about how we evolved in these environments of complete silence and but silence seems to be somewhat uncomfortable for us and so now this is why like people keep their tv on all day because we don't want to deal with that we don't go outside as much being outside is really good for us we don't take on um hard challenges that sort of challenge not only just our body but even our mind and and spirit and and on and on and on um so things have just really changed and the main change that's happened is we as a society as we advance we tend Each advancement tends to um, catch on if it can make us more comfortable, and that's had some repercussions. For sure. So you were,
1: and you were actually talking about that, um, how going outside is super important and how it has health benefits. So I was listening to the podcast that you were doing with Joe DeSina, I believe is his name. And uh, you had talked about this three-day, it's either the three-day concept or the three-day theory. And I'm actually reading the book, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. And so I'm into the stage where it talks about like we're mostly in these beta uh, brain waves, right? Where we're just Mm -hmm. like analytical thinkers. And if you're in high beta, essentially it's where people get paralysis by analysis. And it's where all these like fight or flight hormones kick in. And it's just bad for us to be in this at all states of the day. Uh, but you can get into what are alpha brain waves, um, where you know basically info is consolidated and it goes into your you know it goes into gray matter. You're probably going to be a lot better at this. Can you talk to us about the? Is it the three day theory or three day concept?
2: Three day effect.
1: Three day effect. Yeah. Can you talk to
2: us about that? Yeah. So basically, what um, neuroscientists have found is that and there's a there's a guy from the University of Utah who does a lot of work on this, and there's a girl who's in my book who I spent some time with, who does a lot of work on this. Basically, so humans now spend like 95% of our time indoors. We know that being outside is good for us. And this is probably because these are the environments that we evolved in. And so they kind of speak to us. And now we live inside in these like, you know, walls and right angles and, and all these all these things. And we know that different doses of time outside is good, but the three-day effect is sort of at the top of this concept called the nature pyramid. And it basically states that after you've been outdoors for more than three days, um, disconnected from electronics, if you're on your cell phone, this totally cancels this out. Yep. But basically what happens is your brain starts to lapse into those alpha waves. Um, because to, to your point, In the modern world, we mostly ride these beta waves that are like, you know, kind of go, go, go. And by getting into alpha waves, these are the same waves they find in experienced meditators. And they're associated with um, more creativity, calmness, just general life satisfaction, just like a feeling of well-being and and even kind of like a slowing down of time. Um, And I think people intuitively... You experience this when you go outside for extended stretches. It's like the the, and I experienced this when I was up in Alaska. But it's like the first day or two, you're still like a little bit kind of, eh, you know, like oh, did I leave the garage open? Yeah. Um, oh man, like I'm <laughs> yeah. gonna have so many emails, and like you're just kind of, you know. But by day three, you're just like, ah, oh, this is nice. Like you're kind of, it's like this Zen wavelength yeah. that people tend to find, and we don't really we don't really get opportunities to have that as often now. So this is why um, this concept called the nature pyramid says that you should spend at least three days in the back country once a year.
0: That's awesome. And from, from what I understand from, from my research I've done on you, your, your journey to get out of your comfort zone was when you were dealing with alcoholism and t- deciding to become sober. So you know, for a lot of our listeners, you know, one of our hosts, me, myself, I'm sober. Another one has, it just reached his one year milestone of sobriety mm-hmm. as well. And what would you say to those people who don't think they have that opportunity to, to get out of the comfort zone? Cause it is, it's something like you said, you know, drinking a beer or having a, having a glass of wine that gives people that comfort that they don't really realize. And then when they try and break through it, it's, it's so hard.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I can sp- to speak for myself. Um, you know, I think it for me, it's a, and for a lot of people that have like a, a problem where, you know, I didn't really have a choice of whether or not I was going to drink.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> My favorite drink has always been the next one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when your favorite drink is the next one, you sometimes find yourself in quite a pickle. In they don't life, run out, right? do they? Yeah. Um, so that becomes problematic. But like for me, drinking just was a really easy fix to, All my problems, you know, whether that was like, um, it just made me feel more comfortable with myself, with whatever was going on. (laughs) That first drink would always fix it. Now, the 17th drink, now that's what was causing all my problems, but I didn't (laughs) see that, right? (laughs) Um and I think, you know, I had, uh, I had tried to quit, uh, a lot of times and it just never took, but for one, for whatever reason, one morning I woke up and I could just kind of like, it was kind of like a shift and I could just kind of see, you know, if I kept drinking the way I did, um, I was definitely going to die early. Um, granted that would be the more comfortable thing to do. That'd be easier, yeah. you know, Drinking's pr- pretty easy, um, <laughs> or I could try and get sober. And this was kind of the uncomfortable path, you know, where humans hate change, especially when that change involves like, it's scary because, you know, you've kind of leaned into this thing your entire life and now you're going to have to just totally give up the thing that has, has worked, even though you can kind of see it's tearing your life apart. Um, yep. But I chose that second path, you know, and I'm lucky that it took, you know, it's like still something I'm conscious of and have to be, you know, aware of. Um, but yeah, so for, I guess someone in that position, you know, I kind of think about it as like, to, like what helped me determine that I had a problem was, you know, back to the idea of what's your favorite drink. Mine was the next one, right? If you are the type of person where if you have one drink, you're not sure if you're actually going to have just one whenever you pick up that first drink, might be worth looking into. Yeah. Um, I think that people sometimes have to be, have to hit some sort of point where things get really bad before they can change. Um, but I, I will say that, you know, for me, after I got sober, like literally every single facet of my life improved. Yeah, sucked going through that, and that's kind of the overall message of the book. Is there's a lot of things in life that um, are uncomfortable to go through, but on the other side of that is a lot of um, self improvement in a variety of ways. So,
1: absolutely, yeah, and so it's one of those things where whether it's you know a struggle with alcohol or eating or exercise or anything that you're trying to change, it's most people make changes for one of two things. It's inspiration or desperation. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. most people wait till they hit a rock bottom in one of those areas in order to start making changes. Um, And speaking of making changes, I'm in the recruitment world and we're seeing this big issue right now with candidates where people are flaking, like no Mm -hmm. showing on interviews, um, you know, lying and say that they had something pop up or like texting five minutes before and say it's, it's the weirdest thing in the world and or they're ghosting. And I think part of it has to do with what happened with COVID. And you talked about like the comfort, right? Well, when COVID hit and everybody was getting checks, or you know, their companies were still paying to keep them on payroll, but they didn't have to do anything. They could literally sit at home, sit in their pajamas, they could hop on a Zoom call like once or twice. I think people are struggling to get past like back the back into of the office, the I have to work, like a full time job. Um, so I, I don't know if you, I don't know that, like I said, this is really random, but like, do you have any opinions on like maybe what COVID has done to, to put people in that comfort and even more so struggle to break out of a comfort zone?
2: Yeah, I think you've kind of seen two reactions to COVID. And I think the most, if you look at research, um, the most common reaction is that we just kind of got more comfortable. So like, you know, Drinking, smoking, video game playing, screen time, porn watching, all these other things, they rose significantly during COVID because it's stressful. And so, to sort of comfort ourselves, um, you know, we did all this stuff. We just got more comfortable. A lot of people gained weight. You know, there's a quarantine 15 or whatever they're calling it. Um, But I also think that you saw another group, it was a little less common. But for example, you also, you could not get a spot at a national park because yeah. a lot of people were like, shit, I need to go outside. You could not get your hands on indoor gym equipment because some people were like, oh, this thing is maybe gonna, I'm maybe gonna be worse off if I get this thing if I'm not fit and I haven't worked out and whatever. So I, I need to change. So I think there was two reactions, the people leaning into comfort and people going like, oh, maybe this is the time to rethink how I'm living my life.
0: Yeah, and I actually totally agree with that. I mean, us as a group, we're here in we're in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, mm-hmm. Andy Frisella has created the 75 Hard program. I completed it during quarantine, and Matt is actually just about to wrap his up right now. And that's like as far as I mean getting out of the comfort zone, um, I feel like we both attacked that situation head on.
1: Yeah. And so totally. I was actually gonna I was gonna bring that up. It's um I didn't realize like people, whenever I've been going through it, because I I post the, you know, the daily story or whatever it is, so, show a day I'm on. And I tell people, I'm like, it's not to like boast and say, but it's because I'm kind of insecure. And I know if people see that I'm doing it, that they're gonna fucking know if I stop at day 64 or whatever it <laughs> yeah. is, right? So it's like- <laughs> i'm day
2: 64? Yes. <laughs> yeah, totally.
1: Exactly. But people ask have been asking me like, why did you do it? Like, And I'm like, there's a lot of reasons why I could do it. But part of it had to do with boredom, right? Part of it had to be stuck, being stuck in a routine. Part of it was because I was craving growth and I was really untapped on some of my potential. And so after listening to more of your stuff, I was like, I was comfortable, right? Like I was so comfortable that I wanted to do something that was going to force me to, you know, not go out and drink with friends. It was going to force me to stick to a diet. It was going to force me to do all these things for 75 days, which I had never done. Like I said, is because I was craving and I needed, like you said, uh, to really put myself through something whereas trials, tribulations, injuries, just a complete mental fuck in order to come out a little bit of a new person or at least develop some new habits.
2: Yeah, I think you learn something about yourself along the way. You know, in the book, I talk about this idea um that's called Masogi, And yeah. uh there's this guy who I write about and spent some spent time with in reporting the book. And his name is Marcus Elliot. And um he's out there, you know, he was he's he's a burning man OG. He's, he's going he
0: sounds to- awesome from stuff you've yeah. you've said on other podcasts. I mean, that guy's it, like intense.
2: Yeah, he's super rad. Um, really just kind of like One of those people who just kind of gets it and, like, will just say, like, these small little things that, like, hit you like a truck, you know? Like, he just gets it. Um, Super smart, though. So, he's out there, but he's super smart. Went to Harvard Medical School. All that stuff is, like, really revolutionized um, sports science with big data and AI and whatever. But, like, he understands that what improves people can't always be measured you know, like what improves your potential and performance. And so to get to that, he does this Misogi thing where it's, um, once a year pick some really, really hard freaking task. And he, um, he defines hard by saying you should have a 50% chance at completing it. Like true 50% shot. If you execute perfectly. Um, and then the second rule is that you can't die. And so they,
0: <laughs> it's a good, you know, rule. they do yeah. just,
2: yeah, it's a good one. Try to follow that one. <laughs> right. Um, people know if you failed that part. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, they've done stuff like, you know, carried a heavy boulder underwater for five miles. Just like one person goes down walks it and then comes back up and the next person goes, um, crazy, like height, you know, they'll pick a mountain, the farthest mountain they can see and try and get to the peak in a day. Um, but really, it's not a physical thing though. Really what they're trying to get at is these sort of psychological and even sort of spiritual layers you find when you put yourself in a position where you really have to sort of dig deep and find your shit and keep going you know yep um and we saw that you know you see when you look at like a lot of uh, mythology like the work of joseph campbell and stuff on rites of passage that humans used to do this stuff all the time you know whether it was shown to us by our natural environment because, you know, on a hunt or having to migrate or whatever it might be, or whether we engineered it for young people, we'd learn something about ourselves and realize, you know, we had a lot more potential than we realized because you get put in a spot where you think you're going to quit, but somehow you keep going and you've gone past your edge and you can look back and say, well, you know, I thought my edge was there, (laughs) but I'm past it and I'm still going. And I think that gives you a, a new gear that um, you didn't realize was there. And then you can take that gear. You know, the point is not to do the thing and leave it there. The point is that now when you go back into your normal life, you have this new gear that you can use in your work, in your relationships, in whatever the hell it might be, right?
0: Yeah. Now, was your trip to Alaska for hunting the caribou, was that your Masogi?
2: Yeah, I think it kind of was. And I've done... um, I've done one, try to do one every year since. So my Alaska trip was 2019. It was like right before COVID in the fall. Um, I think it was, yeah. Um, I had to basically go, cause I, you know, I'd never really hunted. Um, I'd done some outdoor stuff, but like more than a month up there. I mean, that's yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a long yeah. time. Um, so yeah, it was. And like, there definitely was times where I'm like, what the hell am I doing up here? Like, this is crazy. I like, I want to go home, you know, but I didn't. <laughs> By you could make right? that through <laughs> that entire time, didn't yeah, I did not. So it was like, you know, you come out and it's like, wow, I then, think, I wasn't sure if I could do that going in.
0: So, what's uh, what's the next one we're all going to do together?
2: Yeah, Ooh. well, I think that um, you guys are in Missouri, yeah, we <laughs> where, where do you fly? live? Okay, so. Or we'll just walk there. I'm in Vegas. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, there you go. That's the I'm in Vegas and I hate water. Okay. Like- I suck at swimming, so for me, I'm like, I should probably, if I'm scared of water, I should probably do a water masogi next. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's awesome. Yep.
1: Yeah. We'll
2: so figure something
1: out. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we'll just get a verbal confirmation from you right now that all three of us, or maybe we'll grab the other guys, we'll do something.
0: We're gonna swim to like <laughs> Catalina Island or something. We'll, we'll I do. I like it. Okay. <laughs> or Alcatraz. That would be a freaking great story. Go to San Francisco and swim from Alcatraz. Go. Do Back. people do people do that? I, I mean, mean people, besides people, besides prisoners that yeah, tried, besides been, convicts, that's, yeah, a, great, that's yeah. a great story.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're down. We're gonna write it in. We'll we'll I like talk. It. We'll talk dates after this. So, <laughs> um, a, another one on the Joe Decina podcast. You talked about uh, there's somewhere between six and twelve percent of the world thinks the only six to twelve percent think the world is getting better, which is fucking nuts to think about. You know, because we've yeah. got we've got all this. I mean, we're literally talking to you from across the country, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and you talk about, and it's a super interesting concept to me, the the prevalence-induced concept of change. Um, so I'll let you talk on that. Could um, you just start to expand on that a little bit of what it is?
2: Yeah. So here's how it started. There's these two Harvard psychologists and they're at an airport and they're going to a conference and they're standing in line in TSA. and they know something funny and that's that TSA uh, is really good at finding problems (laughs) and they're often wrong. Right. So like how often have you gone through security and like they rip apart your pack and what do they find? It's like a bottle of water or there's like, you know, just something stupid. Um, And granted like their job is to find problems and you want them to be better safe and sorry. But they also wondered like, what if all of a sudden like, people stopped for getting the bottle of water in their backpack and like the scanners never went off. Like they were just, all the problems went away. Yeah. What do you think they do? Do you think they would just let people sail on through and being psychologists they're like, I don't think they would. I think that because their job is to find problems, they would just start looking for problems and, you know, let's just tear this apart because well, maybe. <laughs> and so, They wanted to know, like, does the human mind just search for problems when maybe problems don't exist? So what they do is, when they get back from this conference, they set up this study, and um, there's two different studies. In one of them, people were asked to look at 800 different faces, and they were the point of the whole point of the study was to deem whether uh, the faces they saw were threatening or non-threatening. Right, so they would be like, you know, threatening and not threatening threatening not threatening but after the 200th face they started showing the participants fewer and fewer threatening faces and the other study it was really similar except this time it was with uh ethical and unethical research proposals so they'd read these proposals okay this is ethical this one's unethical midway through fewer unethical proposals so you would think because mm-hmm. these should be rather black and white right if yeah. you see a face and it is threatening to you okay If you have some like moral line that you've established that you think you have, you would think that, you know, they would see fewer threatening faces. They would have fewer. uh, They would report saying that uh, less and less of the research proposals were unethical. Well, that didn't happen. (laughs) It turns out that people just kept the same ratio the entire time. So what this tells us uh, is that the human mind is really good at seeing problems and it bases its problems on everything that's come before it. So we don't really have an ability to see down the line in history and be like, oh man, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, 4,000 years ago, we had it really, really bad and hard. And I have it so good right now. What we do is we just pick out the problems in our life and compare everything. We're constantly comparison shopping to the last thing. And so when you put this in the grand context of of history, (laughs) of course we have it better now. Yeah. Like you said, we're zooming right now. Yeah. We're, we're doing this in air conditioning. We're, we're well fed. How many miles did you have to run for your food today? Yeah. None, right? Exactly. <laughs> Things are amazing. Um, but when you poll people, they think of, they, this kicks in, this idea of prevalence-induced concept change or uh, problem creep, as you can think of it. And we think, oh, well, you know, I don't like the president right now, or I don't like this, or this thing is bad in my life. So yeah, the world is actually getting worse. So like 6 to 12% of people actually think the world is getting better, which it, is insane.
1: It, yeah. It's so insane. And uh, it's interesting to me because it's, it's such a double-edged sword, right? Uh, because what, what you were talking about, people tend to get really used to their circumstances. Like as human beings, it, it's it happens really fast, whether it's you win the lottery or they've actually done studies on like amputees and like their level of happiness and stuff mm-hmm. like X amount of time afterwards. So yes. we tend to get used to our environment. So like I said, it's a double-edged sword in terms of it, it sparks innovation, right? Like you find the problem, what's the solution? And, mm-hmm. then, and then how do we get that to people? But on the other end, you know, you, people can get so fucking granular with it that they start to label things as microaggressions just so they can have an excuse to be offended
2: right? Yeah. Well, we start to become less satisfied with the same thing that used to satisfy us. So to your point, you know, the message is not everything's perfect in the world. The world is 1000% perfect. No questions asked. Let's just sit back and relax. The point, the larger point I think I'm trying to make in the book is like, yes, we need to keep trying to improve our situations, but we never stop. We're fucking miserable in the meantime. (laughs) We never stop and go, this is awesome. This is super awesome. 99% of my life is awesome, but I am going to focus on this 1% because I do think that gives me a purpose in life to try and keep improving. I can grow from that. I can do all these things. We instead are just think things are terrible, you know? Yeah, a lot of time.
0: So you've done some pretty cool things. You've, you know, you've been to ancient monasteries. You've been to high-tech genetic labs. You've hung out with special forces at the training grounds. Of everything that you've done so far in your life, what has been the, the biggest life-changing moment internally for you through all those experiences?
2: Um, in terms of work stuff, well, I would say um, <laughs> what probably improved my life the most, uh, was getting sober for sure. Cause you, 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 know, I wouldn't be able to go out and do cool stuff like that if that hadn't happened. Um, but in terms of some of the work stuff, I mean, the time in Alaska was really, really profound. That changed my life. And one of the main things that it did was it really helped me see how good we have it today. You know, um, like I was telling someone the other day, I hate to fly. And on my first flight up to Alaska, we're in this big 747, like up to Anchorage. And I'm like, this sucks. Seat is too small. Coffee sucks. Bathroom is super cramped. Uh, plane's too hot. It's everything. like, once I spend time in Alaska and I'm starving the entire time, it's freezing cold the entire time, everything takes effort. If I want to get water, I have to walk a mile down to the stream and then carry it all the way back up to camp. It's like when I get on the return flight home, all of a sudden I'm like, this plane is freaking amazing. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't sat in a soft chair for a month. I haven't had running water for a month. This coffee is warm. There is hot running water coming out of a faucet at 30,000 feet in the air. Like this is amazing. Yeah. So I think it made me better, um, appreciate everything that we have that like whole, you know, full circle experience. Um, But beyond that and some of them, I mean, I think think a lot of the reward is like meeting some of the cool characters that I have. You know, like Marcus is a really interesting guy. Um, The guy who is in the section I have about hunger named Trevor has become one of my best friends. And he's one of those people that has completely changed how I approach thinking about like everything. Like that dude um, is super fun to hang out with. He's just so smart and he'll just like unpack things and you're like, man... I never thought about it that way, but that's a lot more interesting way to think about things. So
0: so last week we had on Connor Beaton from Man Talks. So I'm not sure if you're aware of who he is, but we had a conversation about initiation and how like in North America, there's not really like an initiation process anymore for a boy to become a man. And like, you know, you hear about this Muscogee and like what you've done in Alaska and that, that's something that we don't have anymore. Do you think that's something that we're going to get back or or how important do you think it is for for a boy to transition through that phase to, to become a man?
2: Uh, I think it's super important. You look at a lot of the work by like Carl Jung going way back and like some of his predecessors. It's like, we know we need these sort of rights that make us clearly understand that we, you know, we were at point A, but now we're at point B. And I think really the only place putting this at scale is probably the military because you take someone and then you put them through this trying middle ground, i.e. boot camp or hell week or whatever it is. And when they come out the other side, um, you signify that they're a new person with whether it's like a green beret hat or a ranger tab. And I think that can, that is a crossing in the line of the sand. Like that is a rite of passage, right? Now that the issue is with the military is that then we send them off to war and that often comes with a lot of a lot of baggage. But I mean, when I was talking to Joe DeSena, it's like he pointed out that a lot of countries do a like a year in the military is mandatory. Like I lived in Bolivia for six months at the time and every 18 year old has to do a year in the military. It's just, that's just the way it is. Um, I don't think that would fly in the US. No, well, probably not a bad thing. No, I think it'd be great. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it would be a bad thing, especially if you it was just a mandatory thing, and you kind of did your time, and you realized like, okay, now I'm ready to sort of move on because now we we definitely don't have anything profound or at scale,
0: and something like that I think would bring a lot more respect to the country and to those that do have to go to war and actually serve. I think that's yeah. that's a little bit lost at the moment.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, and you talk about uh, again get back to the the Masogi um, and how. When you were out hunting caribou for a month in freezing cold weather, how like when you were back on the plane, like everything, like everything seemed great. Um, it, it those things can tend to put things in perspective. But when you talk, when you look at like I'm, I think we're all victims of this, or just uh, guilty of it, I should say, uh, getting pissed over little things like hitting every red light, right? The internet's slow here, like whatever, right? Totally. Um, do you feel like you just have to continuously put yourself through these misogies in order to like really understand that you don't have it that bad and really develop more of an attitude of gratitude or do you think there's little daily actions that you can do to kind of get yourself in that mind frame
2: yeah i mean i think it's a little bit i think that people tend to do well whether it is in a lot of different domains if there's like kind of a daily check-in or, you know, frequent weekly check-ins along with just some like big (laughs) pushback every year, you know? So I think that's kind of why I like the idea of Masogi. It's like, I'm going to go out, I'm going to do something really hard that's going to like really push back at me. But on a daily basis, I should be trying to seek out ways to get at whatever I'm whatever goal I'm going for. So when it comes to like that, that gratitude, um, Thing You know, for me, it is doing, it is kind of like removal from these things, like doing a masogi, spending a lot more time outdoors. But even like weekly, I will go volunteer at this homeless shelter. That'll remind you how good you have it. That's the truth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Things like that, that are sort of check-ins and helping people and just whatever you can find that gives you whatever it is you're seeking. You know, if it's the reminder of gratitude, something like that.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. So we're winding down here a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously we're the biggest podcast you've been on to date. Mm-hmm. And we're yes. bigger, just curious though, Bigger than the
1: Joe Rogan yeah. podcast or uh, most likely exponentially. better.
0: Exponentially. Yeah. I yeah. mean, exponentially. We haven't sold out to Spotify <laughs> yet, but. Um,
1: yeah, and we don't take on well, yeah, advertisements just because we don't, you know. I forgot we signed that NDA. Yeah, Never uh,
0: Okay, right. Um, no, but seriously though, um, you you got to be on the Joe Rogan show uh, like a month or two ago. What has that done for you just being on, on a platform like that? For, for an hour and a half.
2: Um, and how did that come about? Question.
0: Like, how did, did how did Joe find you?
2: Oh, um, so as part of, I mean, publisher, the publisher that I have, has a publicist who kind of like helps with a lot of podcast stuff. And then, um, Donnie, who I went hunting with, had been on um, Joe's show at some point, so I think that those two sort of, you know, yeah, she yeah. she contacted them and was like, "Hey, yeah, Donnie, blah blah blah," and it just sort of worked out. Um, and the book, the topics in the book are just up his alley, yeah. you yeah, know, for sure. Um, I think it, I think it helped with. Um, I mean, definitely helped sell some books. Yeah. Um, helped with just, you know, some people like. They could have read the book and been like, "Yeah, this is good. I liked it." But if they heard it was also on Rogan, they're like, "Oh, this book is way more up. like it." Just people yes, just yeah. go, "Oh, okay." That, then it must be legitimate, which we sometimes need that, you know. I yeah, mean, yeah. like credibility. I, I mean, your... I yeah, I do the I do the same thing yeah. when it comes to to books. You don't know like what, um, you know, you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think I think that's helped. But I think like most important is that. You know, some people have found me through there who are really cool and picked up the book and it's helped their lives. Like, and I think that's like the big reward of writing a book like that. It, it, like, this is, you know, initially I was kind of when you release a book into the world that you've been chipping away at um, for three years, you don't know how people are going to take it. And like, you know, some people are, some people are like, eh, I thought it was okay. But then sometimes you get messages that are like, hey, I'm a military vet with PTSD and I was overweight and, you know, I read your book and I started doing a lot of the stuff in it and I feel a lot better and I'm down 20 pounds and you just go, well, fuck, that three years was worth it for yeah. that one message, exactly. you know? Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's cool.
1: Yeah. That's incredible. Again, being able to change lives is, is pretty incredible. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited to read the book for sure. Brad, do we have any other questions before we're going to get to?
0: No, I mean, I think we we covered a lot of shit there, so.
1: Okay, cool. So we'll get into the
0: OnlyFans inquiry. Who we got, Brad? So right. this week we have a question from Jessica. And obviously we market the women just as much as the men on Professional. So <laughs> uh, she wants to know, she read your book and she said, if if you could pick two things from the book for people to implement in their life first, what would they be? Silence, a break from technology, nature, talk about death. What, what would the the two action items be that you would suggest for people?
2: So I'll answer this at sort of if I'm thinking of like a grand scale of people, if they were like, you know, let's say, let's say Joe Biden calls me up and he's like, Hey, I'm passing some laws. What do people <laughs> have to do? Right. So we're putting mm-hmm. these at a grand scale. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I would say re, hmm. yeah, this is tough. I mean, I. I I had other ideas that were going to go in the book and they got cut because I didn't think they were as important. So this is tough. It's like choosing from your children. What are your two favorite children? That's actually interesting
0: Um, though that you have ones that didn't make the book that could possibly be your advice right now.
2: Well, if they made the book, I thought they were most important. So I'm really kind of having to select between stuff in the book. I think that the idea of um, realizing your impermanence and thinking about death practice, I mean, that. that's a good, easy way to get pretty grateful. And it, I think it can change people's behavior in a really positive way. And that's, you can do that before bed, right? <laughs> yeah. um,
1: so, think, I, and so getting into that, and so just to, to pause there, because I haven't read the book, and that's something that is like, I don't personally have, like, I, I guess I haven't thought about it, right? Like, and if I think mm-hmm. about death, it's like, I just change the subject, like my head. (laughs) So, so can you talk to me and then our listeners a little bit about why that piece is so important?
2: Yeah. So um, I won't tell like the entire story, but after hunt, after hunting, I started thinking about how we approach death in the U S and, you know, we really kind of ignore it um, and try and hide it. And this goes from our food system to our funeral system. So if you think about our food system, it's like, meat just kind of shows up at the grocery store. It's packaged in a way that we're not reminded that it came from something living. Um, But through hunting, like you have this realization or I did anyways, that um, in order for one thing to live on, another thing has to die, right? And, you know, in the US, even with our funeral system, when someone dies we make them look as alive as possible for like one final viewing and then we put in the ground and then what's the advice oh take your mind off it go do something take your mind off it. don't think about it you know um now this is very different than some cultures so i traveled to bhutan and in bhutan they the people are instructed to think of their death anywhere from one to three times a day and death is really woven Jeez. into the society and its art um, and its cultural celebrations and in all these different ways Now, Bhutan is one of the least developed nations on Earth when you look at things like GDP. But it's also one of the happiest. They're consistently in the top 20 happiest countries on Earth. Um, Sometimes they take the top spot. And so in the U.S., we have this idea of like measuring what's going to make you happy. Oh, you get a good job, you make some money, you buy some shit. Stuff and things. Well, they don't have any of that. Um, And so this idea of thinking about death Um, being woven in. There's a lot of reasons why they score so happy. It's not only this. um, But I went and spoke to a Buddhist leader in the country and he talked about, you know, when people think about death, their own death, even though it is very uncomfortable, it's like the most uncomfortable thing you could ever put in your mind, right? Um, It helps cut the BS from your life. It starts, it changes your behavior because all of a sudden you start asking questions like, Okay, if I know this ride is going to end, I'm going to be more conscious and present of my behavior on this ride. You know, he said he he explained it like walking towards like everyone's walking towards this cliff. Mm -hmm. You are. I am. We all are right now. And this cliff is going to end. The cliff is death. Now, you can choose to just keep walking and not realize there's a cliff there or you can be more conscious of the cliff, because if you're conscious of the cliff, then you might say things differently to the person you're walking with. You might notice, you know, the beauty of the nature around the cliff. Like you're going to you're going to your behavior in your day-to-day life is going to change in such a way that tends to make people happier and help them make decisions that are going to that affect them more deeply. You don't get as caught up in the sort of mundane stuff that uh, we tend to get caught up in, I would say. So that's why it's uh, important. But in in terms of number 2, I would say, you know what, let's go with rucking. I would, I think that more people, so one of the reasons that our rates of chronic disease in the U.S. are so high is because we just don't, uh, we don't hit the fitness markers we should, you know, and all the research suggests that improving your cardiovascular fitness and improving um, your strength levels is one of the easiest and best ways to, fend off the diseases that kill us now, heart disease, certain cancers, strokes. Um, Even if you were in a car wreck, being fitter, you are less likely to die. (laughs) So it has all these benefits. And I think that um, the rate-limiting step for a lot of people is, you know, I talk about in the book, like even when we exercise now, um, we tend to do it comfortably, the average person, right? Air-conditioned gym, I'm on an elliptical. Then I go to some machine and I do like the biceps curls on the machine and then I go home. Um, you know, rucking is interesting because the human body is built the way it is essentially so we could run long distances in the heat. And after we would, after the, uh, we would use this to basically chase animals down and the animal would eventually topple over from heat stroke. We'd spear it. And then we'd have to carry it back home. So that's the second thing that we're built for. And, you know, I argue a lot of people still run, <laughs> but not many people carry heavy stuff for a workout. But I argue it's even, it's a lot better for us because you're still getting the cardiovascular benefit, um, but it's a lot safer. So running, just because of the way we live now, um, tends to injure a lot of people. The injury rate on running is relatively high. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also gives you an element of strength. It's sort of like cardio for people who hate running and lifting for people who hate the gym. So I just think it's a super accessible way for people to be more active, and we know that's super important, and it gets and it usually gets people outside, that's you know, and we don't spend enough time outside, so you're hitting a lot of ducks.
1: I like that a lot, um, and Brad and I were actually talking about it that I think we're as a podcast going to try to get something at, like I don't know if they've got like actual events that involve some sort of rucking, but we're going to try to get something going.
2: yeah, you should, okay, so check out Go Ruck. they do um, some challenge type things there's anywhere from. They have six-hour events, 12-hour events, and 24-hour events um, that are team events. They're really cool because, you know, most most modern fitness events are kind of solo endeavors and you're not forced to work as a team. So it's cool to do stuff with a bunch of people.
0: Cool. Awesome. Love that. Well, we really appreciate our time with you today, Michael. I uh, really enjoyed the book. I'm um, looking forward to finishing it up. And thanks for coming on. Michael Easter, hey. a.k.a. The Professor. We appreciate
2: you. <laughs> Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. That was fun. Awesome. See ya.